Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks. This is Kyle Brost with the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. Uh, really excited to have Philip McKernan on today. He is philosopher, speaker, and self-proclaimed enlightened hooligan, which I'm interested in hearing more about what that means. But Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to hear uh, hear your perspective. I got to listen to you speak at Thrive um, and really enjoyed what your message and, and the stuff that you're talking about in terms of purpose and really getting at um, the things that we ultimately should be focusing on and caring about in life. And so what would you have the audience before we even start know about you? Um, what would I like them to know about me? I think I, I'd like them just to just to begin to open to the fact that, you know, maybe I'm just more ordinary than sometimes people make me out to be. Um, I'm also, I'm a little bit controversial. I may say stuff that'll piss you off and we'll push some buttons potentially. That's not my intention, but that's my, what, my, what, what happens. And just to be open, um, and judge me maybe after the entire interview and, uh, as opposed to during or before it. Um, so that's, that's basically all I ask. Yeah, I think that we can definitely commit to doing that. Um, so you say you're a little controversial. Where, where do you think that comes from? Just your your perspective on the world, uh, your openness with communicating. What do you think makes you controversial? I think it's all of the above. I mean, I like to call things uh, not just as I see them, but often we all see them. Um, I like to get to the truth. I don't like to have fluffy bullshit conversations about the weather all the time. Uh, I grew up in a small little island of Ireland, which is absolutely beautiful and full of, in my personal opinion, amazing people. But uh, the, the the things that tend to consume a lot of the conversations there is the weather, uh, the neighbors, uh, sport, and uh, to some extent politics. And uh, and I feel that the world is is overrun with those conversations. And my job is to bring a deeper conversation to the world to those who are willing to go there. I also challenge some of the things that are commonly accepted by many, uh, whether it's going to college, whether it's goal setting in the traditional sense, whether it's, um, you know, just various other different nuances um, that a lot of us take for granted and assume are the, are the things making money uh, with the hope that you can use that money to make a difference or that you can then give yourself the freedom to go and do what you want. I don't believe in that. Uh, so I don't believe in some of these commonly held beliefs that a lot of people uh, hold on to. And I think that's part of the reason why humanity is in some respects very challenged right now. And yet I think we've had, we have most incredible opportunities in front of us in the world. I like it. I love the the kind of contradiction between where we're at in terms of difficulty and conflict and uncertainty and and yet feeling like we have the greatest opportunities in front of us. Do you think some of your candor comes from growing up in Ireland? I, and I ask that because my admin, her name is Siobhan, uh, is from Ireland and she is pretty candid as well. And I'm just wondering <laughs> if that's like... Yeah, I, I, I do. But I also think I'm even more candid uh, to some extent than, than some in Ireland because 
I think that's partly to do with growing up as a, you know, as a, in, a, in a family of, of two brothers in a fairly competitive household where it was, there was lots of challenges in many respects, but I think our parents gave us the freedom of voice to some, you know, they, 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 they it wasn't what they said. It was almost giving us this, this freedom to, to express in different ways. I mean, the one thing my dad and my mom indirectly taught me is that no one in this world, no one on earth is better than me and nor am I better than them. So I think, uh, you know, I, I see myself very much as an equal. I don't feel that my voice is less important uh, or for that matter, more important than anybody else's. But I, I do feel very confident in, in what I see and what I believe in, not just for my own personal journey, but I believe I have a massive amount of, of, you know, kind of informal data and science to back up what I'm saying, because I've worked with thousands of people all over the world and I can, I can back it up by real life examples of many, in many of their cases. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, Ireland definitely gives you, there's a there's a there's a there's a kind of an openness in Ireland. Typically, when there's a few drinks going, uh, your tongue gets a li- <laughs> your tongue gets a little bit looser. But it's to be able to do that without alcohol involved and doing it not just to be controversial for the sake of being controversial. Anybody can do that, but to absolutely convict but with a degree of conviction and belief behind what you're saying as well. Yeah, good, good. So one of the things you talked about is you just mentioned being willing to go there. So to being willing to go to this space and these conversations that a lot of other people aren't willing to go to. And then you also mentioned that you grew up with this freedom to express yourself. What do you think the connection is between being willing to go to these spaces that are uncomfortable and maybe people don't naturally go to and this idea of freedom to express yourself? Yeah. I mean, I, I often have people sit down in front of me and say, Hey, you know what, you know, find my blind spots as if I'm a magician and I can just find something that, that lies within them that they don't even know exists. And to some extent (laughs) I can help them do that, but I, but I'm not as good as people sometimes make me out to be. And, and they often followed up by another statement that is, Oh, by the way, before we get stuck in, before it's a coaching call or whatever the, the, the context, the environment is, by the way, I'm really open and you can challenge me wherever you can call me on whatever. And I go, yeah, well, people, people typically say that until you get to an area that they don't want to be called out in and an area that they don't want to discuss and an area that they don't want to go to. And I feel that, you know, we have this, this thing, and I'm not sure if I'm deviating from your question, but I'm attempting as best I can to answer. We have this, this ability to say things like, oh, you know, get me out of my comfort zone. You know, like I had somebody recently, you know, who worked in a large organization saying they don't like what they do, but one of the challenges they're in their, they're, they're comfortable being paid a lot of money to work in a very successful organization and to run a successful team. And I looked at her and I said, be really careful by what you just said. You just said you're comfortable. I'm not looking at a woman. This is on a Zoom call live uh, in person. I said, I'm not looking at a woman who's comfortable. I'm looking at a woman who's incredibly uncomfortable and has become so comfortable in the uncomfortableness of not in essence showing up as you can. So to me, I think we need to challenge this thing, this idea of comfort. And I think we need to become a lot more comfortable with uncomfortable conversations. So they become incredibly comfortable over a period of time. So I'm used to stepping in and having awkward conversations and, and having, you know, these so-called difficult conversations in order to make more, create more ease in my own life and, and people around me. I like that. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, this idea of you know your comfort zone and, and discomfort and predictability. So when you're talking about this individual who says you know I'm I'm um, I'm you know comfortable or I'm uncomfortable, I, I think that there's this association with I'm okay getting out of my comfort zone 
if it's predictable. But when you get to that space, what people often don't realize <laughs> is that getting out of your comfort zone in the real sense of the word gets you into a space where it's unpredictable. And that's where people get surprised because they're like, well, I can get out of my comfort zone as long as I can predict the discomfort. But yeah. as soon as I get to a space where I can't actually predict how I'm going to feel or the experience I'm going to have, now that's way beyond what I was thinking in terms of comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've nailed something that's so important that in all the interviews I've ever done, no one has ever brought this up. And I think you're just so bang on. And, you know, I spoke to somebody recently. I said, how open are you? And I, and they looked at me and said, like, to this conversation, to going wherever I need to go in terms of to find my blind spots. Where I said, yeah. I said, oh, God, nine out of 10. I go, really? What if, what if you're not that open? And they go, you think I'm closed? And I said, well, you're one of the most closed, open people that I know. In other words, you think you're open, but you're incredibly closed. And how I best would describe this person is I'm willing to be open as long as you can show me on a spreadsheet where we're going and what the outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. So it's that being uncomfortable with not being able to predict where we're going. And, and, and that really what we're talking about there is a lack of control or letting go of the illusion of control because control is a complete illusion. It does not exist, hasn't existed, and is never going to exist in the world. And the reason that we try to control is because we're scared. The reason we're trying to control is because we're afraid of actually uncovering who we are and what we're meant to do. And I often find that people who are seeking, the people who are seeking security, that is driven by a deep insecurity within themselves that they haven't addressed. And therefore, no matter what they do extrinsically, it's never going to feel satisfying internally. I really like that. I think that is uh, profound. But, but you did say something that makes that triggers me a little bit and makes me wonder. <clears throat> so you talked about the illusion of control. And there's an element of that that I buy into, that we as humans tend to think we actually have control over far more than we really do at the end of the day. Um, I've, I've been fairly successful in my career. I have an Inc 5,000 company I've, you know, bought and sold businesses. And a lot of times when people ask me, they hate my response. When they ask me, how did you do it? I say a whole bunch of luck and people hate that because they want to buy into this idea that entrepreneurship and success is solely under our control. And so a lot of people get frustrated when I say that, that, well, <laughs> half of my success is due to just luck, good timing, you know, like a whole bunch of factors that I had zero to do with all coming together. But uh, to contradict that a little bit, there's also this element of, of actually needing to believe that we have some level of control. Otherwise, why do I even take a step forward if I don't have any control? So what do you say to that conflict between, and I accept, I I accept a certain level of it, of what you're saying, but how do you deal with the conflict between accepting that we don't have as much control as we think we do, as well as knowing that we need to believe we have some control in order to take the next step? Okay. So actually, it's so funny you bring that that first point up. Uh, I just had an entrepreneur, which doesn't normally happen, but he just happens to live locally and I know him. So he's going through um, some transition or he has a degree of uncertainty around the current business he's in. So he reached out. We just literally spent an hour together and he left 25 minutes ago. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting that he's got a lot of this success and he would have lived a lot of his life feeling that he was in a lot more control than he was um, and, and, and now that he feels that 
he fe- he's feeling this emotional disconnect in his life and he's feeling that the control he's had is starting to kind of fall away and he doesn't know what to do. He feels very uncertain. He feels the landscape is shifting around him, doesn't know what to do and how to move forward and so on and so forth. The word I would use is probably influence. Um, so let's remove the word control, which I, I still believe is an illusion. So we can control or attempt to control as much as we, as w- as much as we can in our lives. And then to sound very dramatic, a meteorite hits, 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 uh, you know, boulder in Colorado where I live and wipes me out or anybody else out. Um, or something outside of our control happens, whether it's a health scare, et cetera. So I believe that we don't have as much control as, as we believe we do. I believe we need to let go of control because control is a, a very large attachment. But I do believe that we can influence our path and the path of people around us, and particularly through the lens of impact, significantly. So to me, I think energetically, the word control brings a lot of controlling attachment type of energy. And influence is we put ourselves out there, we take that step forward the best we can with clarity, even without clarity, and that we can influence the next step and what's around the corner to a large extent. And that's really where luck comes in. And this man who just left 30 minutes ago just said, any entrepreneur that tells me that luck is, this this is his words, not mine. Any entrepreneur that says luck is not involved in success, he says is bullshit. He said, the amount of luck I had, but it isn't interesting. I feel that luck is available to all of us. Yet, arguably, we could say that it seems to happen to the same people over and over and over again. And I feel that that's where influence comes in, that we take those steps. We're in the right place at the right time. Some would say it's luck, and it is, but it's kind of influenced luck. In other words, we've taken a chance, we've taken a risk, and the universe is rewarding us from a luck standpoint, but also from an intentionality standpoint. Okay. So I can buy into that. I can accept I can accept the idea of influence. I think you know my concern going into that conversation was really... If you take control, and and we can focus on the word influence as well, but if you take control out of the equation saying we don't really have much control, then my experience is it gives people too much of a cop-out. It's like, well, if I don't have control over it, if I don't have influence, right? if I don't have some level of ability to influence and, and shift how my life is going... Well, then any failure I can just cop out of, I can, well, it wasn't mine. It wasn't my issue, right? It was the market. It was, uh, you know, the other person, it was my relationship. It was all these factors versus recognizing that you may not have control, but you absolutely have some level of influence, uh, and, and really focusing on influence of, you know, action and behavior and where you put yourself versus influence of results. And I think that that maybe is another piece that we could really dive into is, the difference between influencing how you choose to move forward versus influencing the end result and how much control you actually have over the end result versus how much you have over how you choose to take the next step forward. Yes, I agree. No, we're 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 saying exactly the same thing. And and again, this this there's just I see I see the 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 I suppose the fallout of so many people coming into my work or into you know face to face engagements with me who have been holding on so tight to this illusion of control and trying to control every element and aspect of their life, and it seems on the surface to have paid off at some level, but it also comes with a very detrimental cost. Um, so when they do let go of their business or they do sell their business or their business has a challenge, not just are they challenged intellectually, but they're deeply emotionally challenged and rocked to the core because their whole identity is being challenged. And a lot of the reason, a lot of the challenges that have been created by just this over over emphasis on control, whether it's emotionally at home or whether it's in your business and a strategic level, et cetera. So I think we're saying the same thing, maybe just coming at it slightly differently. Yeah, I would agree with that. <clears throat> so it makes me think about... Um, 
you know, people fall on this spectrum in terms of how much control and influence they believe they have. And in entrepreneurship, I think in that, that space, for whatever reason, probably a myriad of factors, uh, people tend to fall on this control side where they believe that they have a lot more control than they actually have. And yet there's people that fall on the other side of the spectrum where they don't even realize how much influence they can have. And so just last week I met with a, a young lady and she has this great opportunity. She went and got some education and uh, it's a little bit of a challenging space to get into. Um, she's trying to become a mediator and there's some legal barriers, but at the end of the day, there's not anything that would prevent her from taking the next step. And yet she feels like there is. So she has given up this level of influence by thinking that the goal is too big. So it's this huge goal to her. And she's saying, well, that's so big that I, there's no way I can influence it. So how do you get somebody who's on the other side of the spectrum, who feels like they don't have influence, who feels like the thing is too big for them to even take the next step? How do you get that person to take the next step? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, first of all, I'd, I'd be, I'm really curious to know why this person thinks the goal is so huge. Now, I'm not here to make it insignificant. I mean, anybody making a transition from whatever this person was doing before to whatever they're trying to do now, I admire it. But I think what we do is we put this massive emphasis on, on change. And we particularly put mass, massive emphasis on change from what we are, we're not meant to do or what's something that's not in alignment with who we are to something that is in alignment. And we make this, this massive chasm that it just simply is is not. An example of that, um, you know, we could use that example that you have. I just don't know the context a lot. But one one thing that I think a lot of us underplay a lot is the location in which we live in from an energetic energetic standpoint. And I was working with this couple once and um, they, they came back after a number of weeks together or weekends together and they came back and said, you know what, we've decided to make a massive change. And I said, what is the massive change? We're going to move to this location in British Columbia. And I just said, great. So the location is where you used to live, where home is, where all your friends, all your family is. Yeah. And where you're living right now is where you went to, to make money, but you hate the place. And yet this is a massive move. And they said, yeah. And I said, I don't see it like that. I said, don't get me wrong. I appreciate the fact that you're making a transition. I'm not trying to uh, reduce that to nothing. But what I'm trying to point out is you're trying, you're moving from a place that you're out of alignment to a place you're in alignment, a place from that you're not fulfilled to a place that you believe you'll, you'll be fulfilled. And yet you're, you're making this out to be this enormous move. And for some of us in this world, energetically, right or wrong, we believe that we only have four or five or six big moves in our lives. So I'm just, I'd be interested. The number one thing I would do with this person is why is this such a massive move from say working in a corporation you don't like to setting up your own, your own business and, and so on and so forth. So I'd love to deep dive deeper in terms of emotionally why this person thinks it's such a big deal. That's number one. Number two is take, take the concept of a vision board and a vision board, obviously, for many is a representation of the things they want and a physical, you know, kind of guidepost, um, a, a visual representation of the things they want to achieve in this world. And the analogy I use is you can have that beside your bed every single day. So you can swivel out of bed before you put your feet in the ground. You're looking at your vision board and you're telling yourself intellectually, these are the things that I want. You can you can even tell yourself these are the things I deserve. And you can use all sorts of affirmations to reaffirm these things intellectually. But here's the problem. Every day you step out of bed, you're seeking to validate how you feel about yourself. And therefore, you bring things into your life that actually represent how you feel as opposed to the things you say you want. So hopefully I'm making some sense here. And then we wonder why we're not achieving these things or why we haven't succeeded in the areas we said we would. 
So a lot of what I believe a lot of people have not addressed is their, call it self-worth, their, their own self-value. So a lot of people sabotage themselves or create goals that are so big that they're setting themselves up for failure, not because they cannot do it, but because they don't believe they deserve to do it or have the ability to do it. And that that is something I see all the time in humanity. Mm. So there were two things that I was thinking about as you were uh, as you were speaking. And the first one was this idea of massive anything. So whether it's massive action or massive change, uh, in the entrepreneur space, you hear people talk about taking massive action all the time. And I yeah. always have to kind of laugh at, at that. And I think, what is it even? I don't even know what massive action looks like because the honest, the reality is every big achievement I've gotten has been through really small, ordinary steps. So to talk about what it means to take massive action, I'm always a little bit confused because I'm like, well, that maybe end result feels massive, but the steps you're going to take to get there are not massive. They are like literally picking up the phone and making some phone calls. They're, uh, you know, mapping out a plan, their network, you know, it's these really basic small things. And to your question of why people might feel like something's massive, I think they just haven't broken it down. They haven't gotten to the reality of the small, simple steps it's actually going to take to get there. So that feels massive when in reality, no, it's not. They're going to be the same basic, ordinary steps that everybody takes. Exactly. And when you figure out what massive action is, will you let me know, send me a message or a text? Because I don't, I don't know how to figure that out either. But here, here's one thing that people say to me quite a lot. They say things like, wow, you moved from Ireland, the country you love. Like it wasn't like I hated Ireland or I hated my family or they hated me or the cops were chasing me or the tax man was after me. It was, I left Ireland because I, I absolutely felt deep down I needed to leave everything I knew in order to find out who I really, really was. And for some, it's a corny cliche concept. And it was, I wasn't even conscious at the time. So I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like I was always, I was this super self-aware guy that was heading off on this, this mission. I didn't even know what I was doing at the time. But, and everyone says, God, to leave the country. Like I've moved from Vegas to LA and I was like, that was a massive move. Like move from Ireland to North America and then move from Canada to the US in the last two years. Like what massive moves? And I, I used to kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that, but I never got it. But what I've realized is that wasn't the massive move, nor was that the courageous move. Where the courage begins is those nights where I sat beside a fire with my wife when my kids were asleep. And we had these courageous conversations, these small, what maybe even in hindsight appeared to be almost semi-insignificant conversations about, are we really happy living in Vancouver? Are we really happy living in Ireland? Is this the law? Is this, can we discover more about ourselves? Or we did this or did that. That's the courage. People think that you need immense courage and massive amounts of courage to create massive amounts of action. And a lot of us look to other people and assume that they have it, but we don't have it within us. But when I look back over the last, say, five or 10 years in particular, where the courage came in was just the ability to challenge who we were and what we were doing. That led to these obvious things that we needed to do, which were simply actions, which were simply moving trucks, moving furniture, making a move. They weren't that big a deal. Yet most people around me put a lot of emphasis on those things. Where they were simply the outcome of something else. Yeah. Well, so that statement you just made that about challenging who we were and what we were doing, that I think is the, the key piece, right? That you actually spent the time and energy and emotional energy to explore that question uh, yes. where so many people are just, you know, kind of wandering and they're waiting for those things to happen to them. They're waiting for something that's going to trigger this exploration and reflection uh, versus taking the control of it, taking, you know, using your influence 
to challenge who you are and what you're doing uh, against where you think you could be. But it goes back to the the comment you made about validation versus progress. So many people are waking up in the morning and their sole goal is to validate who they think they are. And so they avoid anything that could challenge them because it puts who they think they are at risk versus focusing on the progress that they can make, recognizing one of the things that I tell people all the time, and it's one of the things I believe firmly is the bigger the gap between who you think you could be and who you are today, the more exciting your life. If the gap between who you are today and who you think you could be is tiny or doesn't exist, that's got to be a phenomenally depressing way to wake up in the morning. 100%. 100%. I was asked on a podcast about a year ago, and the very forgot, I wasn't trying to be an ass on purpose, even though that sometimes happens. Um, I, I, this lady, she'd, put, she'd done so much research, she'd looked at different stuff that I've done, et cetera. And the first question was, I've got this question, this burning, burning question, the opening question of our interview. And she goes, how did you become so authentic? And I know by the way she was asking the question energetically, she assumed that I was going to take that question and go, now let me tell you. And it's all down to my 16-step system <laughs> and the two secret ones that I'll give you when you buy the first 16. <laughs> yeah. And and I could just tell, like, no, I'm exaggerating, obviously, to make a point, but she was definitely expecting me to go, I'll tell you how. And I went, well, with respect, you're making an assumption I am authentic. And she was stunned. She goes, you mean you're not? And, and we, this is just the beginning. And I could just see her. She was just getting depressed in front of me because she'd done all, she had all these questions. And I said, no, I'm not trying to be difficult. I just want to point out one thing. I don't believe I'm as authentic as a lot of people make me out to be. I think I'm way more truly, organically, intuitively or, you know, authentic than I used to be. But I've got so far to go. The area that I get a lot of compliments in is parenting. Because when people meet their kids, they think they're, you know, they're cool or they're great or whatever they think. And people say to me, God, you know, I'd love to be, a guy tagged me on Facebook one day. I'd love to to, to the most amazing dads in the world. And he tagged all these dads and I was one of them. And for like two and a half minutes, I, my ego played in and I was, I was thinking to myself, God, I'm one of these cool dads. (laughs) Then I asked myself, myself, do I feel like an amazing dad? And the answer to that question is no. Like, no, I, I think I'm a five out of 10 in most areas of my life. And yet I've dedicated most of my life to like, you know, progress to growth, to personal growth, to development. And, and I pride myself, but I'm very willing to point out where I've got flaws with my clients online in these situations. But the thing is my, my fear is actually ever getting to an eight or nine, because the minute I think I'm a nine or dare I ever get close to the arrogance to think I'm a 10, I'm screwed. I may as well be dead because then there's no room for growth. And that to me is a dreadful, deathly place. I may as well be in a, in a, in a, in an antique store with the, you know, four inches of dust on me, uh, with a price tag, you know, that's almost zero, but nobody wants me anyway, because I may as well be dead. Uh, and to me, I think that's one of the greatest mistakes. The amount of people I meet every week, Kyle, says to me, Oh, awareness. Yeah, no, I'd be, I'd be about a, an eight or a nine out of 10 on awareness. How's your relationship with your wife or your husband? Oh yeah, that'd be, that'd be eight or nine as well. And your kids, Oh, well, I've got six kids and uh, oh, it'd be eight or nine and all of those as well. Uh, and even if it was one of those, the minute you say that, all you're basically saying is there's room for a slight tweak, but nothing fundamental. Yeah. And I think the minute we say that, we've just shut the shutters down on the store called life, called what's available, called possibilities. And to me, that is a tragedy for most people. Uh, well, I couldn't, I literally could not agree with that statement more. I think it is one of the foundational beliefs that people need to develop is this mindset of focusing on progress over validation. Stop trying to validate who you think you are 
and focus on the progress you can be making. Can I can I share one little it's a real it's a real life nuance of this or story. There was a lady on the phone to me one day and she said uh, she was chatting about business and I find when people talk about business all of the time like don't get me wrong I'll talk business. Um but when they're talking about it all the time I find that they're they're sometimes trying to overcompensate or they're trying to control where we go in the conversation in order to make sure that we don't land on the place we need to land on. And out of the blue I was switching off from the conversation. I finally said, "Anyway, just one quick question." Um how's your relationship with your kids? And she just stopped dead. She was talking about, you know, profitability or turnover. I know what she was talking about at this stage. I just, I'd let go because it wasn't relevant. She thought it was, but it wasn't. And she goes, uh, my kids. And I said, yeah, how's your relationship with your kids? She's oh, great. Amazing. And I went, great. I just got one quick question. How do you know? And then she got a little bit annoyed in other words, I was challenging her. And she said, uh, well, Phil, they're my kids. It's my life. Uh, I should really know. And I said, yeah, no, I get that. But how do you really know? If it's a great answer, and, and, I, and I want it to be amazing. I'd love to be kind of wrong in my questioning here. I want you to show me how it's great. And then we can just move on. And uh, she, she basically gave me lots of examples. And all of those examples were what she has witnessed in other parents, what she has witnessed in her own parent-child uh, relationship with her parents. So in other words, it's better than she had with her mom and dad. It's better than her friend Betty. And it's better than her friend John across the road. However, when it came down to it, I said, great, let's talk about it. And she talked about it for 15 minutes. And the next minute she turns around, she goes, it's not that great, is it? And I said, no. And here's the interesting thing. She knew it wasn't great when she answered the question, it's great. She knew it wasn't great. She knew that. But she was so scared and she was so, she felt she was so incapable or didn't have the tools or didn't have the emotional awareness to deal with it. She just kept telling herself a story that it's great so she didn't have to deal with it. And here's the great thing is, so some people might go, so brilliant. You took a lady on the phone who was fired up, great for her, wants to talk about a business. You depressed her by getting her to the reality that her relationship with her children is not even close to where she thinks it is. Yeah, true. But here's where I was really going. Now she can do something about it. Because when you're a 9 out of 10, there's little room for maneuver. When you're a 6 out of 10, or in her case, a 4 or 5 out of 10, I know it's not very scientific, but just bear with me. Then there's a whole lands landscape of opportunity, like you just talked about a minute ago, and that possibility. But here's one of the challenges. She wasn't fired up about that. She was depressed because she spent the rest of the time on the call beating herself up about the fact that it wasn't as good as it could be and that she wasn't a great mother. And I was trying to say to her, hang on a second. You're going to be a shitty mother, and just bear with me here. You're going to be a shitty mother when you get to 80 and realize this. You're only, what, 35, 40 years old? You've got a whole lifetime to not fix, but to influence where this can go. Is that not exciting? And eventually it became exciting over a period of time for her. And I promise you, if she was on the phone today, she'd say it's not perfect, but it is now truly a six or a seven or an eight out of 10, as opposed to falsely giving us a number because she was trying to protect herself and not face reality. Yeah, yeah. There's a population out there that's that easily accepts this idea of validation versus progress and emphasizing progress. <clears throat> I think for those who don't accept that, who who wake up tomorrow and are still seeking for validation, it is somehow related to the idea of perceiving these things as massive changes. So I I, I guess the question is. How do you get someone to tie the changes that need to be made in order to see progress and become comfortable with those changes 
versus just getting stuck in that rut, uh, walking away from the conversation and going right back to where they were before of, well, I just want to validate who I think I am. How do you get them comfortable with the change, uh, with the level of change that's going to be needed and the exciting possibility of what the future could be as you make progress? So this is where I jump in and say, I've got this methodology, which is proprietary and I can't talk about it, but I'm I'm the best in the world at getting people to see that light. But the truth is that I don't think you can fully get somebody to do anything. I think that there has to be an awakening and opening a, a, a willingness to see what they cannot see within themselves. And I don't know any other way. I've tried everything in the past. And what I what I've realized is that there has to be this willingness to to be truly open, or willingness to see that you're not open. And I don't know a better way to get a, a, to see a human being pro- progress to that place other than pain. And I'd love to tell you there's 15 other ways of being more proactive, and of course there is. But actually, pain tends to be the one commonality in a lot of people that. I believe are truly ready to see what they don't want to see or cannot previously see. In other words, they hit a wall or they've been doing the very thing they think is going to bring them success and they've been telling themselves and they've been seeking the validation to prove that that's the case. And then to finally realize that actually, you know what, they've been walking down the wrong path or they've been walking down with the wrong tools or whatever analogy you want to use. And unless someone's willing to you know, really, really admit that they could be on the wrong path or knows categorically they're on the wrong path with evidential proof of like, you know, knowing that the last four or five years they've, they've made, they've gone the wrong direction. I don't know any better way or mechanism or opportunity to work with someone unless they're in great pain. But the challenge is that we've become very immune and very comfortable with pain, with disconnectedness, with living in cities and countries and places and states and provinces that we don't really want to live in. But we tell ourselves it's okay and we rationalize and justify it. We're great at staying in relationships that don't really serve us. And in some cases, we feel disrespected, but actually, in fact, we justify and rationalize it. And we've become brilliant at continuing to do work that doesn't nurture our souls and doesn't really make us feel purposeful and meaningful in this world. Yet we rationalize and justify it because we're doing it for our kids or we're doing it for the future or we're doing it to to, to monetize or whatever it happens to be. So we're, we're, we've become really comfortable in a degree of pain. And I don't know any other better way to get somebody out of that than than waking them up. It's the alcoholic that comes to me and says, hey, my wife sent me. Uh, she thinks uh, I've got an alcohol problem. Hey, McKernan, can you do some of your, do that magic stuff, do that stuff you do. And I'll, 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 I just want to get on with this. Uh, so you're an alcoholic. No, no, I don't think I am. But my wife thinks I am. And in fact, all my friends do. And, and everybody in my, all my colleagues believe I am as well. But unless they fully see it themselves or are willing to begin to see it, I don't think you can work with anybody. I don't think there's there's anything you can do as a coach, as a leader, as a parent to get that person to see something that they do not or are unwilling to see. And I think that willingness to name that and walk away from them is probably one of the best things we can do. I believe that everyone is, and I think you were, this is just another way of saying what you were saying is everyone is living a pain. Some people are more aware of it than others. And one of the ways to get people to uh, become aware of the pain that they may not, that they've become numb to because it's just become part of their daily life is by helping them see the alternatives and actually believe that there is an alternative. So if you don't ever see the alternative, 
then you accept what is. But if you can get someone to see that there is an alternative to even something they believe is good and right and comfortable, if you can get them to see a bigger and better and more profound alternative and believe in that alternative, then I think it creates a sense of pain between, wow, I thought that this, I thought what I was doing, I thought this life I was living was this great life. And yet now I see this alternative that I believe in and is so much bigger and better than where I'm at. And that difference is a pain. That difference between where you are today, no matter how comfortable and amazing you think your life is, and the alternative that you could create will produce a pain. Do you buy into that? Yes, I do. But 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 it's 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 the only thing that I'm questioning here is the get getting them to see it. So getting them to see it, and again, I'm not trying to be pedantic here and splitting words, is almost like, well, the person getting them to see it is really the person that's in charge and has most control or influence, whatever term we want to use. The thing is that there has to be this courageous part of us that is willing to accept and to see the pain, to see the alternatives. And I've worked with so many people, and the best way that let's just say and they're few and far between they're they're the minority thankfully are certainly the minority of people that come to my work the person that's unwilling to see something the best way to disarm them when they come to a retreat or an event or, or, or coaching, whatever it is, and you can just see there's an unwillingness to, to really see the possibilities. There's an unwillingness to see the pain and there's an unwillingness to see an alternative. It doesn't matter if I stand on my head, flip upside down, draw 55 foot, you know, beautiful elaborate paintings to show them what other possibilities are available. If they're not willing to see those paintings in the way that they can see them, there's nothing you can do. But one of the best ways I've known is to turn around and name what, I'm, what we're just talking about and to name, say, listen, I just don't think you're ready. I just don't think you're willing right now. I don't think you're able to subconsciously and consciously together look at what's possible here because you're so caught in your own story, whatever happens to be. And what I've found is that is the very thing that first of all drives them typically insane and nuts and gets them angry. And then when the anger subsides, we, we almost inevitably get a breakthrough. So it's almost naming the block and that is the very thing that can often help in unblocking them. So I agree with you 100%. It's just there's always needs to be a willingness and a courageous part of us that's willing to see what we cannot see. Unless that happens, I don't believe there's any way of making anybody see an alternative. I like that. I like that a lot. I, I think this is a good opportunity right now to give, uh, just as we've been talking, a couple of practical pieces of advice to individuals. And so I'll give my two. And then if you want to share any other ones that you've come up with or elaborate, whatever you want to do or contradict and shoot mine down, I'm good with that too. Uh, but I feel like I've heard a couple of recommendations come out of this conversation. The first one is around just exploring alternatives. So you talked about how you know you and your wife would have these really simple but profound conversations about who you were and what you were doing, and if it was the thing that you should be doing, and if you were the people that you felt like you should be at that point. And so I think there's this component for everybody listening, taking those moments, those tiny moments of reflection to explore alternatives and asking that question, who am I? What am I doing? And is it aligned? Is it uh, producing? Is it leading to something that I cherish, some purpose that's deep within me that I that I really am driven by. Is it aligned? Is it producing that? So there's that, that point of reflection. And so if you're not doing it now, I would encourage you to start to take at least one day a week, you know, a 20-minute break a week and just truly reflect on that question. 
who am I? What am I doing? And are those the things that that will produce what I truly believe in? And then the second piece is, if you're finding barriers, if you find that as you're listening to this, that you're on this validation spectrum where you realize today that you're waking up just trying to validate who you think you are, name the problem, name the issue, name that you're just not ready for it and force yourself to come to grips with that reality that you're just not ready. You're not prepared. Whatever's happening, you're not uncomfortable enough. You're not experiencing enough pain. You don't have a big enough vision, but you're just not ready for it. So those would be my two pieces of advice. Do you have additional ones or elaboration on those or contradictions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're, they're just going to simply echo in many respects what you're saying. And and I, I love questions. I, I spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time creating very simple questions or spending time with questions and trying to simplify them. And I'm going to just provide two questions. One I asked to a group recently, and we literally spent about four hours uh, just talking about this question. That is, um, what do you know deep down you need to do? But for whatever reason, you're just not ready to do it right now. Um, so what do you what, what do you know deep down you need to do? But for whatever reason, you're not ready to do it right now. So the, the, that question might sound really simple, but that question took me so it took me so many days and weeks to craft that question. And the, the, that question is designed to take pressure and expectations and judgment off the table. But it's designed in a way that allows you to name the thing you know you need to do, because all of us have the clarity we're seeking. I don't care what anybody says. That's, that's one thing I know for certain. We all have the clarity we're seeking. But what ends up getting in the way is lots of other different nuances and emotions and so on and so forth. So what do you know deep down you need to do? But for whatever reason, you're just not ready to do it. And it's taking off the pressure with having to execute. I know I need to leave a job that I hate, but you're not ready to do it right now. At least name it to the universe. Name it to yourself. Name it to your friends. Name it to your family. Name it to your partner. And by naming it, you throw it out into the universe. Like I remember years ago naming, I'm going to write, my, write a book despite being dyslexic. And I remember the audience, literally some of them laughing because they thought it was a joke. And uh, and I went to the washroom and this this guy said to me, can we talk? And I said, yeah, well, maybe outside the washroom would be more preferred. <laughs> and we walk out and he happened to be an editor, one of the biggest uh, you know publishing houses in the world. And he said, I want to do a book with you. And I said, I don't know if you were in that event, but I'm dyslexic. I can't read and write. And he goes, I know. We're going to put a whole team behind you. We're going to make this happen. And they did. And by just naming something to the universe is very powerful. That's number one. Number two is... If this stirs you, and maybe it's not the most poetic ask in the world, but if this stirs you and there's something about this question that just excites you, then I would ask you to pursue it in some capacity or at least just sit with it without the need to figure out what it means and what you need to do with it. And it's this, is it possible that the greatest work you have ever or the greatest work that you could do or can do in this world is yet to come. In other words, is there a body of work? Work just being, it could be a book, it could be a speech, it could be impacted, whatever that is. Don't overemphasize the word work, but is, the, is your greatest work yet to come? And that is a very curious question. And it's your response to it is what I'm interested in. Because we can always say, well, all of our best work is yet to come and la, 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 whatever. That's not the point. The point is when I ask that question to groups, Sometimes people go, oh my God, that excites the shit out of me. I am so excited about that possibility. Others go, wow, that sounds daunting. In other words, they feel pressure. And others get really sad and angry because they don't actually believe it. So where you are in that spectrum, ask yourself that question, hear this question and see how you and connect with how you feel, not what you think about it. And without the judgment of going, oh, I'm in the losing category because I just felt overwhelmed and pressured. Don't. Just wonder and be curious and dig into, why did I feel that? 
Why did I feel that as opposed to a more uplifting perspective that actually the possibilities are yet to come? And be curious about that because in that curiosity, there's growth. When there's judgment, there is zero, zero growth for self and others. But when we're curious, so even those two questions might jar something it might feel insignificant, but if you sit with it long enough and ponder it and pour some water on it, it can turn out to be something important. Well, so I think your two recommendations are far more clear and compelling than mine. So, so for no, those I people, don't, I don't, I don't agree. I don't agree with respect. I don't agree. <laughs> they may be for one, and maybe not for another. Who knows? Okay, I'll take that, but uh, but I'll still stick by my statement. <laughs> <laughs> so. A couple of things. Uh, first off, I, I want to just reiterate something you said that I think is really important and it could easily get glanced over by somebody listening. You said where there is curiosity, there is growth. And where there is judgment, there is no growth. And it made me think about these individuals. We've been talking about people waking up in the morning and either being driven to validate themselves or being driven to progress. And I think there is something about judgment in there that when you're waking up in the morning and you're driven to validate you are probably judging yourself at a level that is that is is killing that is damning your growth because you're so judgmental about what you're doing about where you think you are in life about your station about whatever it is there's this judgment that's taking place and in order to combat that judgment you have to try to validate yourself versus being curious about who you could be, what you could accomplish, where you could go, these questions that you gave around, you know, what is it that's deeper within you that you just know you could or should be doing, but you haven't gotten started on yet. So I love that, that curiosity is equal to growth and that judgment will will damn the growth that you could uh, experience. Now, my assumption is that some of this conversation is... Uh, is part of the book that you have coming out, um, which is called One Last Talk. Is that an accurate assumption? Uh, yes, I, I believe so. Yes. Okay. And so tell us a little bit about One Last Talk. I'm just thinking about this question of, you know, what do you know deep down that you need to do uh, and the idea of One Last Talk. And I have a little background information on One Last Talk. So maybe you can help the audience get a little bit up to speed on what One Last Talk is. Yeah. And please don't switch off because you think I'm about to go in and sell you a book. Buy the book, don't buy the book, but please listen to the possibilities of this message. Not because they're mine, but because I think they're all of ours. And it's based on the premise of the following premise is that our greatest gift, say gifts, but I actually believe our greatest gift lies right next to our deepest wound. And it would make some sense in a world where so many of us are struggling to find out who we want to be when we grow up, find out what our passions are, understand the differences between our talents and our gifts and so on and so forth, which is a conversation potentially for a different day. But one last talk is the, the, the journey that I believe, I believe that I've, I've been on and I'm, I'm continuing to be on. And it's not the journey I expected to be on. But when I look back and I had to map out the journey I went on, I was trying to run ahead of myself and create goals and, and dreams and aspirations and execute them and, 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 and amass all this wealth and then have my freedom to do whatever I wanted. But in hindsight, looking back, the most important stuff that I've done is understanding who I am as a person. So my identity. 
then understanding the difference between my gifts and my talents. And they are completely different. I'm very good at doing some things and they can make me money, but that doesn't mean I'm executing, I'm executing my talent, but not necessarily honoring my gift. And then the final piece is impact. And I believe the byproduct of those things is a legacy worth living or a meaningful impact in the world or whatever you want to call that. So identity, gift and impact. And I don't believe there's a better way to really look at that other than the way and there's other ways, but the cleanest, quickest way to do that is through the lens of this concept called One Last Talk. So I basically created One Last Talk. It's a live event historically. That's how it started. And the premise of it was you had to come with a 15 minute or less One Last Talk, the One Last Talk you'll ever give before you die. You're not allowed to speak about politics or global warming or the health system or, or, or global politics or, or you know any of those sorts of things. You have to share share a part of your personal narrative, a part of your pain, a part of your truth, most importantly, and ideally a part of your truth that the world simply does not know. And what it's done is it's done this, I, I won't talk too much more about it because I know you may, may have some questions, but essentially 80% of the speakers have never spoken publicly before. So it's not all these gurus sharing their, their talks necessarily. And what it does is when you share your one last talk, it frees you of your truth and it sends this ripple out into the world and hits somebody else somewhere in the on a different side of the globe and lets them know that they are not alone, number one. Number two is begin to believe their story matters, number, number two. And number three is to have the courage to share their story with at least one other human being. And um, and that's the basic premise of One Last Talk. So it helps you understand who you are. It, it, it helps you uncover your gift. And indirectly or directly through the lens of your One Last Talk, you have a direct opportunity to impact one or many through the lens of your One Last Talk. I love the the kind of dual purpose here of really doing some deep exploration, which has been a theme throughout our conversation, um, as well as trying to make the connection between that deep personal reflection and exploration and how it can impact others. So I, I just think that that's a piece we can't overlook, that whatever story and experiences you have aren't just for you. It's not just about you, right? Like there is something else in there that to your point, maybe it's somebody across the globe who recognizes that one person who recognizes I'm not experiencing this alone. Somebody else has been here. And so I love that dual purpose of this approach. If I could just elaborate very quickly on that, you've just nailed it. And, and it's been the greatest single challenge we've had as it relates to this concept and this movement, because somebody was sitting there and they'll say, but my greatest pain, my most embarrassing moment, my greatest shame, whatever it is. How could how can that possibly serve humanity? By the way, it can also, I can give you five reasons how it can unserve me uh, in negative ways with judgment and whatever it happens to be. How can my greatest pain or how can one of my pains or one of my most difficult moments or times in my life, how can that possibly make an impact in humanity? Why don't I tell the inspirational story of how I made, made my first million dollars, how I wrote my first book? That has purpose. That has got potential. That's got the opportunity. But there's a billion of those stories out there, at least, if not more. But very few people willing to tell the other side of the coin. And I, I won't get into lots of examples, but just one, a man stood on stage and shared about the, the day he wants to commit suicide. And he failed committing suicide. He stood on the ledge, 40 floors up, closed his eyes to lean forward, fell backwards, hit the deck. And ironically, the very first thought he had was when he opened his eyes, he said, you know what? I'm such a loser. I can't even kill myself. That's how stupid I am. Mm. And then he went on to deliver his one last talk. And that's how deep judgment runs within us as, human, as humans. Mm. But he went on to deliver his one last talk and then had multiple people reach out to him asking him about suicide, 
sharing their truth that they they thought about it, but never shared it ever before. He literally, you could argue, and I don't want to be over spectacular, you could literally argue that this man is either saving or has saved lives through the lens of his talk. That's And yet at the beginning, he couldn't draw the dots to say, how does this embarrassing, shame-driven story that I've never shared with anybody possibly going to help humanity. I don't think we can fully realize it till after the fact. That's the point. And that's why it's so difficult to get people to understand why everyone on this earth needs to create and deliver their one last talk to at least one other human being, whether they stand on a stage and do it ever in the, in, in the future. That's not the point. That's fantastic. Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of people out there kind of just for the audience, there's a lot of people out there pitching books, but I can tell you that uh, in talking with a lot of people, some people are pitching a book and some people are really sincerely trying to to bring value to, to your life and your experience. And, uh, and that's exactly where Philip's coming from is this place of genuinely wanting to bring value through this piece of work. And before we even got on, he talked about how it is potentially the the greatest piece of work, uh, at least professionally, maybe personally, um, that he's produced and how deeply um, embedded in this work he actually is. So, for those of you listening, and Kyle, it's not even it's not, and it's not even if I could just it's not even my work. It is I created the concept, I created the movement, whatever you want to call that. I've ref, I've made a commitment to myself. I'm never going to sign a copy of this book because this book is written by me on behalf of the courageous men and women who have had the courage to write their one last talk, deliver their one last talk to the world, one or many, and the impact that they are making. So I believe I'm just simply showing up and I'm a vessel for all of these incredible men and women. I'm literally, there's tears in my eyes right now. This is the most important thing I've ever done. And I can say that because it's not about me. It's about other people. It's about these men and women. And and so that that's, that, that's the big difference. A lot of my life has been about me this project is not is not about me. It really is not. Well, and that's the most beautiful part of it, right? Is it is really creating a space for people to create and share their own stories, explore their own um, experiences in ways that are profound. The the kind of final piece that I just want to call out that I think pulls this all together and it was really fascinating is this idea of deep personal reflection is how you help the world. So it's this interesting irony that if you really want to impact the world, you're not going to do it through these superficial means. It's going to take this deep personal exploration, this one last talk, these types of questions about yourself in order for you to have the personal meaningful impact on the world that really matters. And there's an interesting irony in that, but I believe that to be true. Absolutely, hundred um, percent. I somebody recommended me on Facebook today, and they tagged me, and somebody was looking for I don't know coach or business coach or life coach, and they just said, "Oh, this is the guy for you." But just be heads up, just be willing to go deep because he doesn't play any other way. Uh, I just I believe the deeper we go, the higher we fly, and the higher we fly, the higher we allow other people to connect with us and fly with us. I don't mean that in a condescending way, but I mean the deeper we go, the higher we can soar. I really believe that. And I wouldn't have believed that. I would have thought that was horseshit. You know, 15 years ago when I started my own journey, which I thought I could do on my own, I realized I just simply couldn't. And uh, yeah, the deeper we go, I think the, the more we understand ourselves, the more we can really understand who we are 
and how we can show up in this world if we choose to and the impact that we can make just by doing and by the way impact just very quickly i don't want to scare people impact can be impacting one other person your family your children i mean what greater gift to the world than in fact impacting your kids you don't have to go out and speak in front of two thousand people or write a book or whatever that's not the point so so just i want to contextualize impact impact is all relative and once you're showing up as you and and, and going to those places you don't want to go we have direct influence over 258 other human beings scientifically by just walking down the street going for coffee having haircuts and whatever to me that's a it's an impact worth pursuing absolutely 100 percent. i think that's a fantastic place to to conclude um so first off, Philip, thank you for joining us. Thanks for getting into some of these meaty and deep conversations, uh, exploring them with us and sharing your insights. If people want to connect with you, if they want to follow you, if they want to be involved and see the work that you continue to do, uh, where can they do that at? Uh, yeah, onelasttalk.com is is the number one place, I, I believe. Uh, philipmckernan.com is my main website, and I'm pretty active on Facebook and other things as well, so they can find me there. Awesome. So I'd encourage you to go check out Philip. Uh, keep in touch. His book will be coming out soon, and it sounds like one that can really change lives. So, Philip, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate having you on. Thanks. It's been an honor, and I appreciate your uh, openness and candid nature and willingness to you know, be vulnerable as well. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Folks, thanks for joining us for the Art of Strategic Reaction. Stay tuned for the next episode. All the best.